I'm Vinny. And I'm Drake. And welcome to Backstage Biddies, a podcast where two theater nerds discuss our love and sometimes hate of movie musicals. From Golden Age to Disney to Contemporary, we'll recap and review all things movie musical. Join us as we scrutinize Hollywood casting, dive into the history of all your faves, and gossip about controversies of the stage and screen. Press play and sing along because this this is Backstage Backstage Biddies. watching tiktok earlier because that's all i can seem to do anymore and there is this uh tiktok creator who is a beautiful human being who does astrology things okay and they had said that scorpios which for those of you who don't know drake is a scorpio i'm listening intently um it was what type of car each zodiac sign was okay you were a race car Vroom vroom, motherfucker. Vroom vroom. And I know that you're like like a NASCAR. Oh, race I love car. NASCAR. And then Gemini, what Ross is, your husband, was a really big lifted monster truck. Fantastic. Which I know for That's a That's my fact other favorite. That you absolutely love both of those, and I thought that was very fitting. I just love when the big truck eats the little truck. I know. I it's know. It's my favorite part. Oh, just I just love so it. So good. So good. And that's your husband. Wow. And you didn't even know. What luck. You didn't even know. I did know. You've been together for what, 11 years? Yeah. Gross. Um, I recently was looking into, have you heard of angel numbers? Yes. Like numerology and stuff? Oh, yeah. You know how every phone number I've ever had has had 69 in it? Nice. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, yeah. So I was like, is that, it's like an indicator of an angel number if it like recurs in phone numbers for you? I, yeah, in several different things in life. So I was like, cool, well, I wonder what that means. And 69, as an angel number, signifies, like, balance between your spiritual life and your material world. Ooh. Yeah, which is probably why my Libra moon is capable of doing so much heavy lifting. Wow. Because my angel number is also about balance. Wow. I know, isn't that neat? I also recently found out that my, um, my Norse birth rune is the Norse rune for hail, and it represents, like, destructive natural power, which is why I can't be trifled with. I just looked mine up the other day because you had sent that to me and mine is all about guidance and hope. Oh, gag. Life purpose. Well, this is your last- The sun. Dude and doo-doo. Here comes the (laughs) sun and I say- Well, this is your last life. According to a witch that stopped me one day. Was she a witch or was she more- She seems- Every time you talk about her, she seems like more of a soothsayer than a witch. I mean, maybe. What's the difference? What's a soothsayer? Tell me all about it. I don't know. This is a spoopy podcast now. Well, it's autumn now. It is. We're both drinking pumpkin coffee. I've had so much pumpkin coffee. We've lined up what we want to do for like October. Guys, we have the full lineup for the rest of the year. I'm so excited. Oh my gosh, you guys. We have like, we have guests coming on. We have guests on. coming. It's so exciting. I'm so excited to like sit down with our friends and get to do this and like. Oh, what a fun time. Aww. You know what I found out? Copyright-wise, we, we can only be held accountable copyright-wise if we use more than 10 seconds of a song and the podcast is monetized. 
Oh, so our random outbursts, like... Yeah, we can do anything we want. We can technically do anything we want right now because we have yet to monetize this bad boy. But when, but we, when do, we do... Then, like, the re- yeah, 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 yeah. But we can use up to 10 full seconds. That's a lot of time. Unless we post it on YouTube, then we can't use any seconds. None. Zero. Zero seconds. They have such strict strict guidelines in their well, community. That makes sense. Yeah, it does, especially for how wide that platform is and, like, the reach that it has. I understand. But, like, we're in, we're in the clear for the time being. Speaking of 10 seconds of a song, let's talk about our musical. Our musical, the hint this week was Baz. I'll say it again. Baz. Are you saying it again because I looked at you like I was stupid? No, you always look like that. Well, that's it, gang. I have to retire now. <laughs> Benny murdered me in cold blood. No witnesses. What does Baz mean? Baz, as in B-A-Z. Baz Lerman. The director? And writer of this next film, the 2001 film, A Moulin Rouge. The Moulin Rouge. <laughs> this, in fact, was a listener request. It was. Several people asked for this Several one. Several people. It first was a movie. Yes. And actually before this movie, it was several other movies. Yes. I didn't know that until we did the research on this one, but this was a remake. Yes, it was. It was a, a retelling of, of Schorch. And you can find the other one, like, there's actually, like, two other movies other than this one. And the yeah. first one is from, like, 1925, which yeah, they're is wild. Old. But if you go online, I believe I saw the other ones on Amazon. That's where I found them, too. Where did you watch this one? I believe I watched this one on Amazon. I think I also did. Yes, I did because I had to start a seven-day free trial of stars so that I could watch this. <laughs> because yeah. I thought I owned it, but I don't. That is wild to me. I know. We really should post a picture of uh, your collection. Because, All 100 and something of them? Yeah, you have a lot of dividas that are just movie musicals. It's not even just like... And that's not even including my Disney stuff. Yeah. That's just like... Other movie musicals. Yeah. So speaking of this movie... It was released May 16th, 2001, which, fun fact, my youngest sister that I have definitely talked about here on this podcast, Alexis, she was born May 21st, 2001. That's almost a coincidence. Almost. Isn't that wild how almost. that works? It's almost wild. Yeah. Pretty close to being wild. Yeah. Not quite, though. I think it's wild. Okay. Like I said, it was directed and co-written by Baz Luhrmann. The other writer was Craig Pierce. Cinematography by Donald M. Mikkel Pine. And music by Craig Armstrong. Hey, and shout out to Armstrong and McAlpine because this whole movie is such a blur and a cacophony of pop music and quick jump cuts. And I mean, it's, it's bonkers banana pants all the way to the top. For the cast for this one, we have the... Nicole Kidman. Gag. As uh, Satine, which the amount of times that I As almost... Saltine. Saltine. <laughs> saline. Saltine or saline. Saline. Every single time I was typing. She do be a showgirl and a... Prostitute? I mean, yes. We don't use sex, that word no, anymore, she's but... she's a sex worker. I have concubine, and that's super. It's not Oh, uh, no, they call her something in the... It does start with a C. Uh, uh... <sighs> Courtesan. A courtesan. I was going to say escort, but I knew that wasn't right. And then we have Ewan McGregor as Christian. Also gag. He is a writer and a poet in this lovely little story. 
We have Jim Broadbent as Harold Ziedler. Who does a real bang-up job. Yeah, I think he does a fantastic job. So he actually is, he plays the owner of the Moulin Rouge. And fun fact, the actual owner of the original Moulin Rouge that was founded in 1889 was Charles Ziedler. So that's where they get Harold's last name as like an homage to the original homie. That's crazy. Like he was an actual person. Yeah, he was an actual person. Um, Wild. And just a slight, like another little fun fact, the OG Moulin Rouge actually burned down in 1915. Oh, so is the one that stands today like a like a recreation, like a rebuild? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's a rebuild. It's not it's not the original building, which is kind of wild. This building is on my bucket list of like places to see before I die. Richard Roxburgh as the Duke of Moroth. John why can I never pronounce his last name? <laughs> Leguizamo. John Leguizamo as Henri de Toulouse. I love John Leguizamo. This character goes by Henri, but also goes by Toulouse. So it's kind of like... Yeah, they're like kind of interchangeable. And he was also inspired by like the original movie. Yes. Toulouse was one of the main characters' names in the original movie. It's an homage to like the painter, Mm -hmm. Toulouse-Lautrec. Then we have Jack Coleman as the unconscious Argentinian. (laughs) What a role. (laughs) I know. Uh, Caroline O'Connor as Nini. Carrie Walker as Marie. Laura McCauley as Mon Fromage. The Cheese Kid. The Cheese Kid. <laughs> um, <clears throat> what a name. I know. Gary McDonald as the doctor. Matt Whittlett as Settee. Keith Robinson as Le Pentomime. I'm terrible at French, everyone. How weird is it that we have a Satine and a Satie? That feels like poor planning, in my opinion. I mean, I, that character's name really isn't said much. No, it's said, or, I think it's just said like once, maybe in closed captioning if you're really watching, but like, yeah. still. Uh, David Weeman as Audrey, Karuna Stemel as La Petite Prince, and Diobia Opari as, oh, it's this is pronounced differently because there's no E at the end. Oh, uh, 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 El, le, le chocolat. Le chocolat. Ah, 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 at the end. Yeah. So for the production for this one, this took actually Lerman two and a half years to just get all the rights to the music. Go because figure. The, some people will literally only say five words or sing five words from one singular song. But you have to pay for it. You do. But it's wild to me. Like the, just the amount of songs yeah. that are in this one movie. It's, well, yeah, because every, when you look up the, the soundtrack to this movie, like every quote unquote song is a medley. So the whole soundtrack is just like six different medleys that they play back to back. And like, really this whole movie is one continuous song. Like there is occasionally a break, but not often. Not very often. And it's a new pop song, like every 10 seconds. And sometimes it's not even like the full song. It's, or even snippets of it. It's like the instrumental. Right, it'll be like underscoring from a certain song with like different lyrics on top or like... It smells like Teen Spirit is one of those. Right, right. Where like you never hear the words, but like the song is present. Right. That's crazy. And how exorbitantly expensive. Oh, yeah. But that's kind of Baz Luhrmann's thing. Oh, for sure. It's just like over the top insanity. Yeah. It's his thing. Right. And so with being over the top insane... The idea for this film came from a lot of different places, which definitely reads as such, like the influences. Hollywood musicals, vaudeville, cabaret culture, stage musicals, operas, La Boheme, Bollywood films, Orpheus and Eurydice. And there's certain like cinematic elements that were in Cabaret, Folie Bergère, and 
meet me in St. Louis that they decided to use in this too. You can definitely see some of them really clearly. And I'll talk about a really specific example when we get to it. But like all the references are very plainly present. Satine is actually based on a French can-can dancer. Oh, like an actual person? Jane Avril. Avril Lavigne is in this movie? Uh, yeah. But oh her real my God. Her real name is Jane. Well, that tracks. What's the name of the girl who replaced Avril Lavigne when she no, died in the desert? I have no idea. Oh, uh, Melissa. Oh, okay. I Melissa. I can't believe Melissa is in the Moulin Rouge. What if Jane was like the first Avril? Oh my God. What if Avril Lavigne has been like in an, ha- in an Anne Hathaway kind of way? She's been alive for just centuries. Yeah. They just keep replacing her. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Anything's possible. Or maybe Avril Lavigne is an immortal like Anne Hathaway. Have you ever heard that that theory? That Anne Hathaway is immortal and she's married to William Shakespeare and they just like take turns like every other century being famous? I'd do it. I would do it too if I lived forever. Why not? Just fuck around with fame and fortune? What else are you supposed to do with an eternity? Play human games, I guess. (laughs) Also, fun fact, Maman Fromage, Le Pantomime, and Le Chocolat share their names with performers from the actual cabaret. That's crazy. Rouge, which is really, it's really cool. There's a lot of actual deep connection to where this story is pulled from. God, this movie has so many layers. Before Ewan McGregor got the part, they were actually also looking at Leonardo DiCaprio, Heath Ledger, and Jake Gyllenhaal to play Christian. Oh, we could have had Jake Gyllenhaal. He's really good. We could have also had Courtney Love for Satine. Okay. Well, I have less I have less hopeful opinions about that, but did you ever hear anything from Jake Gyllenhaal's turn in Little Shop? No. He's good. All right. I that could have been that could have been nice. That could have been fun. So And this, instead we got this. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> so this film took seven months to film and it was supposed to be way less than that, but like things happened on set. Nicole Kidman, this poor woman broke her ribs twice. What? Broke her ribs twice. Once was from falling from the ceiling. Okay. Well, that'll do it. And then the other time was the corset. Getting oh. an 18-inch waist on her broke a rib. But I Jesus. don't know. I don't know if, like, her ribs were just, like, still damaged. And then, like, when they cinched her in, yeah, broke. I wonder, or, like, how that... I wonder that which injury came first. And she had another one, too. She tore her knee cartilage. Oh, my God. This woman was battered and bruised by this production. Jesus. Yeah. Let me just say from a costume designer's perspective, at no point ever do you need to cinch an actor so hard that you're breaking bones. It's just not necessary. You can fix it in post. You can pat out their hips if you need them to have a smaller waist. Like, figure it out. But do not ever, like, crunch a human person inside of a costume. Yeah. What? It's it's gross. That's insane. Because of several things that happened, the production actually overran its shooting schedule, but it had to be out of the sound stages so that way Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones could film, which also... I was going to say, wasn't McGregor in that as well? That's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Exactly. Yeah, so... So kind of really prudently time-sensitive. Like, they didn't have options to just, like, go somewhere else and finish filming because, like, what their male lead also was not available. Right, so it's like... (laughs) Not only do we no longer have this lot, but also like... We don't have our lead. He's in literally every scene. So the reception for this went over super well. 
which is wild. So it had a budget of $50 million. At the box office alone, it made $179.2 million. Whoa! That's a lot of money. (laughs) That's some nice cheddar. Yeah. The reviews for this, I find them to be exactly spot on. Because so like for Rotten Tomatoes, the whole Megillah basically is like, you either love it or you hate it. I, That's what this experience is. I really agree. It's all style, giddy, over-the-top spectacle, but it's also daring in its vision and wildly original. Uh, Roger Ebert rated the film 3.5 out of 4 stars, remarking that the movie is all color and music, sound and motion, kinetic energy, broad strokes, and operatic access. All things considered, which is like a... It's not like an famous, NPR? Yeah. Um, commented that it's not going to be for all tastes and that you will either surrender to this sort of flamboyance or you will experience it as overkill. I think that's what it really boils down to is like whether or not you enjoy intentional overstimulation because yeah. this this whole thing is just a barrage of visuals and sound and uh, you're processing at a super high speed and it's constant. So like it's a lot if you enjoy that and you like subjecting yourself to that willingly, then you'll really like this. And if you get overstimulated and shut down because of that kind of experience, then you won't. And that's kind of the line, I think. Right, because uh, both Roger Ebert and the New York Times compared the film's editing and cinematography to music videos. I totally agree. Which, especially for the early 2000s, after I read that, so much clicked in. Because I was like, okay. Because I couldn't quite put to words what it was. And they also noted that it gives visual homage to early Technicolor films. I agree. So there's so much research. The way that this film is, is just so much. It definitely plays off of several different mediums and all of this different kind of stuff. Homages left and right to all sorts of film. So a lot of film critics and a lot of like professors who teach about film and all of that have written so much about this movie. So there was there's so much really, truly interesting research to get into. Well, again, it's just got so many layers to pick at. Like every, yeah. every 10 seconds of this film has a whole slew of references, influences, layers to the storytelling that you can pick apart from pretty much any angle. So that's really shown in the awards too. That it won. I'm sure. So I'm only going to discuss the awards that they won because the nomination list goes on and on forever. I'd be here all day. (laughs) So for the Academy Awards, it won for Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design. Well-deserved. Not shocking. BAFTA was Best Supporting Actor for Jim Broadbent. Again, well-deserved. Yep. Best Sound and Best Music. Won the Golden Globes for Best Musical, Best Actress for Nicole Kidman. Well. Best Original Score. And then for the Oscars, they won Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design again. People were very confused as to why Come What May, which is the only original song for this movie, why it didn't get nominated for anything. Okay, so this was, it was an original song. Because when I did research on it, I was like, I don't think this is like a, this isn't a pop song that I recognize. And I tried to find out like where it came from or if they wrote it for the movie and I just couldn't find any information on it. But it, it was the only song that I couldn't like pin down to something else. Right, so Come What May is original for this film, but it was disqualified because it wasn't actually written for this film. It was actually written for Baz Luhrmann's previous film, Romeo and Juliet. Oh! They didn't end up using it for that, and then they applied it here, but that still doesn't count because you just pulled a song from somewhere else. Because it wasn't written for. Okay, that makes sense. That's okay. That makes sense to why I couldn't find it. 
connected to anything else. So from this being a movie, how much, I know that it became a musical, but when did that become a musical? Yes, it did become a musical really recently, actually. So this was a 2018 musical with a book by John Logan. Music and lyrics for the musical is credited to everybody who wrote the pop music that became a part of the score. But there was a really expansive orchestration team, including the likes of Katie Kresik, Charlie Rosen, Justin Levine, and Matt Stein. They orchestrated together 70 pop songs into one singular show. As someone who has done arranging... I mean, bonkers. 70 songs? There are just some people that have a brain for it, and it just... Brava! But I, that's wild. And they needed more than one brain. I mean, like I said, I, I just listed the four of them, but there were obviously other people who were working on the project as well. Right. The new score included lots of updated music from the movie, including Lady Gaga's Bad Romance, Katy Perry's Firework, Chandelier by Sia, and Rolling in the Deep by Adele. Just to name a few, most of the medleys were expanded and added new music too. It opened on Broadway in 2019. It won a handful of awards. Um, It actually had 14 nominations at the 74th Annual Tony Awards, as well as 10 wins. Shoot. Yeah, big numbers. Neither of them are record-breaking, necessarily. I think the most wins in a night was was the producers won 12. And I think Hamilton still has the record for nominations for 16 in one night. (laughs) You know, Hamilton did what Hamilton did. We can't. But yeah, 14 noms and 10 wins is still, they're still doing numbers. It was nominated for Best Book, Best Lead Actress, Best Featured Actor. It was actually nominated twice and Best Featured Actress. It won Best Musical, Best Lead Actor. One of the Featured Actor nominations was a win. It won Best Direction, Best Choreography, Best Orchestrations, and Best Scenic Design, Costume Design, Lighting Design, and Sound Design. All right. Well, it, it is a visual spectacular. I mean, that's what the, the movie was, and it does not surprise me that they pulled that into the show itself. The, yeah, like the the, it really show. It delivers design-wise, for sure. The 74th Annual Tony Awards was the really weird one because it was the COVID one. Yep. So the shows that were being considered for the 74th Annual Tony Awards all got, like, cut off early. The original eligibility cutoff date for the Tony Awards is usually somewhere in April. This year, however, it was cut off in February of 2020 for obvious reasons. Right. So there were a handful of shows that, like, could have been eligible but then weren't because of that circumstance. Um, one of them was the revival of West Side Story, which had its own controversy about like one of their dance captains or one of their dancers. I forget what his position was, but he was like, he had been credibly accused of sharing another performer's like nude photos because they had dated or something like that. It was essentially like revenge porn kind of vibe. It was a whole mess, but and then they ended up like getting the chop. And some people think that because I think the the cutoff was like February eighteenth or nineteenth, something like that. And then the West Side Story revival opened on February twentieth, and Broadway didn't close until sometime in March. So then they were like, "Well, right." So there was lots of like they could have been eligible, but because of this controversy, people think that they weighed on the side of of the victim really, and like just didn't let them have Tony eligibility because of it. And I don't disagree with that. Stop casting Predators in your musicals. It's a, it feels like an easy fix. Um, but it was a really weird year. Aaron Tveit was actually the only person nominated for a lead actor in a musical. The, he was the only, the, um, the, the only whole, one. The, for, the whole, for the whole Tonys? Yep. The whole category for the whole year was just Aaron Tveit. 
So he won. He did win, although they did, they made clarification when the nominations came out that they were like, hey, Aaron Tveit is the only nominee. He doesn't win automatically. We still have to agree as a board of voters that he deserves a Tony Award. Can you fucking imagine? Can, yeah, being the Can only one nominated. Being the only and, one nominated, they're like, actually, we don't think that you did a good enough job to actually win, so you lose to literally no one. No one. Yeah, you had no competition you just, and you still lost. You just were no good. That would suck. You were you were good enough for a nom, not good enough for a win. <laughs> but he did win that. A bless. Luckily. Um, Well-deserved. I think he does a great job. I will say that the score to this isn't my favorite. I don't think it was anything like super groundbreaking or earth-shattering. When I listened to it first time, I was like, well, that's fun. It's not going to win anybody any awards, but like, it was fine. It has grown on me over time, and I do enjoy it as kind of like a fun listen, but it's, I mean, it's not all that in a bag of chips. All right. Despite this being a really popular jukebox musical, there are no West End rumors just yet. Normally, jukebox stuff does really well across the pond and transfers really quickly. Right. Obviously, the timetable on this one is like a little more skewed because it gained popularity here and kind of got its footing during and and right before COVID. And now I know we're having trouble back and forth trying to get things moved around. Like there was a, a production of Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which we have already covered. Go back and listen to that episode. That was going to transfer to Broadway right after its success in London and it didn't, and we're just now getting back to a potential Broadway production. Now, like, what, three, four years, almost four years later? Yeah. They're talking about it for next season. So I have faith that it'll happen, because, again, jukebox stuff almost always crosses the pond and does well, for whatever reason. But nothing yet. Part of that is likely because of all the controversy that surrounded this. The biggest one being Karen Olivo leaving the production. Karen Olivo was the original Satine on Broadway. Couple of fun facts about Olivo. They use they, them pronouns, which I did not know until I did the research for this. Well, right on. At the time of the nomination, they were using she, they pronouns, but now exclusively use they, them pronouns. They were actually a teacher in UW-Madison. What? Yeah, they taught on the UW-Madison campus from 2014 to 2016. Yeah, and we actually know some professors in the area who have, like, taught alongside them. That is wild. Crazy how small the world is. And of of Wisconsin, of all places, for this insanely brilliantly talented human person to land. Well. Not complaining, but, like, they had left the production of Moulin Rouge shortly before they reopened on Broadway in protest of the industry silence regarding the producer Scott Rudin. Not the producer of Moulin Rouge, mind you, but Scott Rudin was a very widely popular producer on Broadway. Okay. And had allegations brought forward about the way they were treating casts, staff behind the curtain, other creative staff, really vicious, abusive allegations. Why can't people just treat people like people? Well, there are studies done on like when you give people unfettered control or power, that it does something to your brain. Good people will do bad things because they're given power. Which is why I personally believe whenever you put together a creative team that you need to have... More than one head. Checks and balances, yes. There should be equal department heads of a sort or some sort of like, you know, like a board of people that you have to consult when you make decisions. Like there has to be more than one 
opinion more than one voice when it comes to decision making because otherwise you end up with a situation where one person can do something unfettered and they spiral. It's bad for you. It's bad for the other people you're working with. So Alivo had left the production and was quoted as saying, social justice is more important than being the sparkling diamond. Ugh. The intention of leaving was to kind of give the power back to the creatives who were making the art on Broadway and not the people who were orchestrating it behind the curtain or like paying for it. Every Broadway theater in New York is owned by like one of three families. They're three white, archaic families who make all the decisions about what's allowed on Broadway, what are we going to produce, what is going to go in what theater. And that's, it's not how it should be. It's like a really small fistful of people who make all the decisions. And that's not how it should work. And Alivo firmly believed that we as creatives, as performers, as designers are the ones who get to make those decisions. Like we make the art, so we should be in charge of it. And stepping away from this production was their way of trying to put the power back in creatives' hands. And Ugh. good on them. What a proud Scani moment. Well, they're from they're from New York originally. I but don't care. <laughs> we're claiming it. Yeah. Let's dive into some plot bitties. Was it? Is it French? We. Oui. <laughs> you know what I hate about horrible. French? Horrible. Horrible. All of the consonants in French sit so far back in your throat, like you have to like swallow the R. Yeah. Ugh, I hate it. That's why I hate singing in French. I hate singing in French. Oh, it's the worst. It feels awful in my mouth. Okay, so the actual plot of this film. Tell me it, all about it. It do be set in Paris, and we kind of bounce back and forth between 1899 and 1900. When we first enter the film, though, they do this really cool thing of they cue up an orchestra and they do tuning. And there's this tiny conductor on the screen. It's set up like a, a proscenium. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're seeing a proscenium with a closed curtain. And we get to see like all of the production companies, music, and stuff like that. Something this movie does at a spectacular level is this insane revolving door of layered storytelling because it's it's a story about storytellers telling stories about storytelling and we just get these folded in layers of that so already from the top we as viewers are watching a movie the opening scene of the movie is set up like a live musical and when the curtain opens first of all i love an orchestra tune-up there's something spiritual about it for me. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that moment. And then the curtain opens and it's like the opening credit sequences of production companies. So already we're watching a movie that is framed as a musical and the musical that we're being shown within the movie is a movie. It's It gets crazy and this is just the first layer. I'd say it's truly baffling. So we enter into the world. It's black and white, grainy imagery. They do a really great use of color bouncing back and forth between the years. We get flashes of color and frills from the storyteller themselves. So we're going down the streets of Paris, figuring out where our storyteller is. And they do like quick zoom throughs and like slow pans on one person. And then it moves really fast again and slow pans on another person. It sets up the pacing for what this whole film is going to be in just this first like 30 seconds. The pacing throughout this entire film is so exquisitely controlled. It's really intense. We come upon Christian, who's our writer poet friend. He is talking about when he first moved to Paris and he got this apartment 
his dad was like, don't do the thing because you're just going to end up like all of these awful people who do drugs and sleep with people outside of marriage and how dare you. Um, And he's like, no, I'm going to go because I want to write and I want to learn about love. It's about him telling his story. And he says that 1899 was the summer of love. It was very bohemian. He ends up right next to the Montmartre, which is the artist quarter in Paris. The heart of Paris. Heart of Paris. Montmartre. So he is sitting there, tippy-tapping away on his little typewriter, super jazzed about life in the world. And in crashes an Argentinian from the ceiling. As one does. I Sometimes that just happens. Happens to me at least once a month. Well, <laughs> your insurance premiums must be insane. <laughs> it's expensive. I could use a sponsor if anybody's <laughs> looking. A narcoleptic Argentinian falls through the ceiling. Then we have Henri, who enters the scene dressed as uh, some flavor of nun. Some sort of nun, yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, so sorry, da 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 And he's got people looking down at him from the ceiling. He's like, what in the hell is going on? Turns out they're just a group of little bohemian people. They're super jazzed about life and love and all of that. And they're trying to create a show about all of that. The bohemians are so incredibly flamboyantly gay. Like, they're meant to be caricatures of, like, the freewheeling, free-loving, like, artist type. So gay. So gay. <laughs> yeah, they're, it's right on the nose. Oh, for sure. Christian decides to saunter upstairs and see what life is about and help them out because the Argentinian keeps falling asleep and they have to have this show done and rehearsed so that way they can go perform it for a backer. So just to clarify... Now that Christian has joined the team of Bohemians as a writer, we are watching a movie about a musical about a movie about a writer writing about a writer writing a musical. Yeah. Just so we're clear. Yeah, it's casual. I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of it. I just want us to all be together on one page. Yeah. (laughs) So Audrey is the writer of this and they can't think of anything. And then all of a sudden... Christian starts singing, uh, the hills are alive with the sound of music. Right, because the play that the Bohemians have put together is like more or less the sound of music. And so we sing the the hills are alive. So they're like, oh my gosh, you're such an artist. You touched our soul. And then Audrey gets pissed and runs off and is like, oh my God, I guess I won't do the show. And you don't really see this person ever again. No, Audrey's kind of inconsequential. Although they're listed in the named characters for whatever reason. I, there were even more named characters. I, I'm the one who cut that list down for that. <laughs> I mean, I guess credit where credit is due. Everyone does their part, but I don't know. 1900 Christian is also telling the story while 1899 Christian is living it. Yeah. So and we they, get constant flashes back and forth between the years. They happen kind of simultaneously. And we do have these flashbacks back and forth to Christian writing the story about his experience. But some of the flashbacks are like, sometimes when Christian's sitting at his typewriter, he's actively writing the play that they're doing, and it's not a flashback, and they're like interchangeable. And so that sometimes. line gets like blurrier and blurrier as you go. Christian is hesitant to join the group at first, but they convince him to become a bohemian and write this story with them on the principles of freedom, beauty, truth, and love. Right, and he's like, no, I believe in all that. Then you're already bohemian. You've already done it. You've done you're the thing. You're already gay. <laughs> Look at you go. That's the dream, baby. And they're like, okay, so 
we are going to have you meet with Satine. She works over at the Moulin Rouge. She's like the main gal over there. If we can get her on board with us, we can get a backer. So they decide to celebrate by drinking some absinthe. Cue the Green Fairy, a.k.a. Kylie motherfucking Minogue. Yeah, casual. Oh my god, this movie is so blatantly for the gays. I Yeah, very much so. Jesus. They go on a wild adventure, and they also end up at the Moulin Rouge. And the thing that is really wild is the fact that, like, it's flashing and moving so much that you yourself feel that you have to be hallucinating like, you have to be on absinthe, too. Absolutely. It's this unique skill that Baz Luhrmann has, and we see it showcased again in, like, The Great Gatsby, for example, when they do the big parties at Jay Gatsby's house. Baz Luhrmann has this unique ability to not just show you rapid-fire frivolity and excess, but to incite the physical feeling of celebration and and frivolity like your body physically experiences it because of the visual stimuli it's being given right it's wild like i don't know how he does it but it's it's so it's again it's just a masterful use of pacing like he just influences the viewer in such a precise way it's really impressive so this was my first time ever watching this film what a wild ride i can't imagine watching this for the first time ever analytically I think my brain would explode. (laughs) Thank God for the pause button. Because Uh the amount of times I had to pause and be like, okay, so I need to condense this into a note that I will remember, but also, is it actually important? Or am I going to prattle on about crap that doesn't matter? And I didn't know. I could have watched this thing 10 different times and probably come up with different conclusions every time. Yeah, this because was there's a, just so much happening all at once. This was a musical that I didn't really love as a child. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't really like... Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it just moved too quickly. And like, if you don't know all the songs, like it doesn't sound as cool and interesting because you're just... You don't get a full song at any point. You just get little snippets of things you're familiar with. Right. So I didn't love it as a child, but I, I got into it like probably after I left college. That makes sense. So I didn't really fall in love with this until I was like 22, 24, somewhere in there. But now I really love it. So, And I've seen it since then probably like 10 or 15 times. So I'm, I'm relatively familiar with all of it. But I can't, I simply can't imagine watching this for the first time and having to like analyze it because it moves so lightning fast. I literally, one of my notes is, so is this whole movie just a fever dream or? It is, it is, it is. So when we're in the Moulin Rouge, one of the things that we get flashes of is Ziedler and his girls. Oh, the can-can dancers? Yes. The can-can-can is, again, just a masterful use of pacing. We're, We're getting the essence and the flavor of what this intoxicating nightlife feels like. Not just what it looks like what the experience of being at the Moulin Rouge is. And it's intoxicating and it's full of privilege and it's full of dark carnal desires and drugs and sex. And it's, I mean, you feel all of those things. It's crazy. The can-can dancers are the perfect example of unity in silhouette and form, but not color. And Martin and Strathy, who are the costume duo who did this movie, have such an insane eye for color Like, the entire movie is just bathed in this backwash of red at all times. It's so clever, and just their use of color is so particular and specific and effective so that we notice it when it's not present, and we're intoxicated by it when it is. I love that about the design here. And these uh, these two 
did an insane amount of work. It's like 400 costumes. Oof. And I'm not going to gush about every single one of them. There's a couple of them that I do have like loud opinions about. And I'm going to try and keep that to a minimum because literally every costume in this movie is insane. Just know that I adore this pair and all the work they did, but I'm going to do my best not to gush every single scene. So much chaos, so much going on. The really great thing about the pacing of this film is that it's been so fast and so much happening. And then all of a sudden it all completely slows down when Satine enters in from the ceiling. Again, her entrance is so precisely controlled. Lerman has such a grasp on the speed at which this thing moves. Because it really makes you then focus in on these really important moments that happen. When you have everything moving so quickly and then you slow down, it just makes that moment even more prominent. So she comes in from the ceiling singing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Ziedler had set up a meeting for Satine with the Duke. Henri set up a meeting for Christian to meet with Satine. They're sitting just like on the other side of like a wall divider from each other. The Duke and... The Duke and Christian and all of his homies. Yes. We learn that Ziedler needs the Duke to invest in the Moulin Rouge because he wants to change it from what it is now as like a nightclub into a theater because he wants to do theater and Satine wants to act. Yes, they're trying to make all of their dreams come true. And the the gaggle of people who work at the Moulin Rouge are self-described as sort of dark world underlings, people that society wouldn't have, people that society rejected. They're people who have to find and make their own way and are forced to do dark, seedy, improper things to make it happen for themselves. Satine is dancing. She looks absolutely stunning. Gorgeous. Completely different color palette from anything else that we've seen in the room. Again, because everything has been so warm washed and red backgrounds and red velvet and and bold jewel tone colors and neons and frills. And then Satine drops down from the ceiling in this like black and white bedazzled number. And she's hit with like cool blue lighting. And like, it's a total tempo shift. Everything about it, from the pacing to the color palette to the everything. The orchestration underneath her, complete shift. She stands out so brilliantly, like a diamond. In the midst of this number, her and Ziedler end up talking because they're doing like a costume change behind people. Right. All the, all the can-can dancers have like lifted their skirts and they're doing choreo and like a circle around them. So you can't see the two of them while they do a quick costume change. They're having this really rapid fire conversation about like, is the Duke here? Where is he? Uh, we're going to have a meeting with him. And Ziedler says, oh, he's the one that Toulouse is shaking a hanky at because something spilled on the Duke or Henri spilled something on the Duke. I don't remember. But he's trying to clean it up. And so he's like dabbing at him with a hanky. And then Satine says, okay, let me look. And as her and Ziedler switch places so Satine can get a look at the Duke, Henri has turned to Christian and is like trying to take his hanky out of his pocket so he can continue mopping up the Duke. So as Satine turns to look at him, she sees Henri essentially shaking Christian's hanky in his face as he tries to pull it out of his pocket. And Satine is like, that doesn't look like the Duke. Are you quite certain? And Ziedler says, well, let me check. And they switch places again. And in that moment, Henri has fully taken the hanky from Christian and is again trying to dab off the Duke. So yes, he's again shaking the hanky at the actual Duke. It's The pacing is stunning. So it's precise. So the miscommunication causes her to end up going to Christian. It's almost Shakespearean in a way. It very much so, which that was one of the influences 
that Baz had. Well, go figure. So she goes over to Christian and is like trying to get him to dance with her and making it like this whole thing after her little costume change. They start dancing together and she's like, okay, well, meet me in my elephant. She doesn't say that, but that's where they end up meeting. It's her dressing room, yeah. Yeah. Satine ends up back on the hoop, flying up in into the ether. And can I just say how much I love the like blush colored ostrich feather thing she's in now. Gorgeous. It's so stunning. It looks so expensive. I also really love Nicole Kidman as a redhead. I just want that on the record. I've seen her in pretty much every hair color under the sun and red is my favorite. I think everybody should be a redhead at least once. At least once. So she starts going up into the ceiling and she full on faints and falls off the swing. She doesn't finish the song. No, no one finishes the song. She says, diamonds are a girl's best. (laughs) And then she passes out and falls through the air. And I just, I was screaming at my television, like, someone just say friend. Someone finish the line. Because also they didn't finish the song. No, it just ends. Oh my God. They left it up. Which is something that builds a lot of chaotic tension for people. And it's like the first true moment of silence that we've had thus far in the film. It's like she gasps and then like the music stops for the first time in like almost a full half hour. We're like 20, 30 minutes into the film and this is the first like... Which is why it is so poignant. Oh, I just want someone to finish the song. I know, but you have to sit with that cringe because that's a part of this. It leaves a gaping hole in my chest. I know, I know. Um, so Chocolat ends up catching her, which by the way, I think Le Chocolat is the secret hero of this whole film. Fully. Just the only the altruistically whole, good character. Throughout the whole <laughs> Megillah. So Satine faints. She ends up getting carried into the back. They're trying to see if they can revive her and get her back out there to finish. And they use smelling salts. Which fun fact, smelling salts are ammonium carbonate or ammonium bicarbonate. And the smelling salts release ammonia gas. Beg your pardon? Yeah, that thing that you're not supposed to breathe in. They would like break it and cause the chemical reaction and make people smell it. Because what ammonia does... Doesn't that like really fuck up your lungs? It does. But it triggers an inhalation reflex in your body because it causes the muscles that control breathing to work faster by irritating the mucous membranes of the nose and lungs. Oh. So that's why whenever someone would faint, they'd use the smelling salts because it would cause them to <gasps> and like have to come back because Oh my god. Oftentimes it was also mixed with like lavender oil or or mint oil or something. I would hope as so. As like a little extra, you know. That's like the whole reason you something. don't mix like ammonia and bleach when you're cleaning your, like your bathroom and stuff because it creates that gas. Yeah, it'll kill you. Yeah, it's casual. I had no idea that's what smelling salts were. It was 1899. We didn't know any better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank God we know now. She starts coughing and we notice that there are some blood speckles in the hanky. And that (gasps) will come back later. Coughing up blood is almost never a good sign. You're not wrong. (laughs) I literally cannot write down notes fast enough at this point in this movie to keep track of what's going on. Like, I have no notes about any of this because we were just moving so fucking quickly. Pause button was my best friend for this because I was like, oh my God. I know, Um, Jesus. So during this whole time, while she's trying to get revived, Ziedler, who is a prominent showman, is out there like, come on, cheer for her, get her to come back. Really hyping up the crowd again. Someone comes from backstage (laughs) from backstage, like, like, it's not happening. No, bro, she's not coming back. (laughs) And then he's like, oh, 
You scared her. You frightened her away. Doesn't but, miss a beat. Again, Ziedler no. is a consummate professional. Yeah, but he's like, but I see a lot of dancers that could use a partner to... Or two. <laughs> oh, get dancing, blah, 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 whatever. And then they kick it off. He ends up going to the back. She's getting dressed in, in that red dress. Which yeah, I that spectacular red dress. That has to be the corset that broke her ribs because that's the time where they're really yanking and pulling. It is certainly the smallest her waist is at any point in this movie. So it, it has to be that dress is thing Probably. that broke her ribs. This is a little confusing because we see her getting into the red dress and then the next scene is her in her dressing room and she's not in the red dress anymore. But we've talked about that and I believe it might be a part of the performance or something. It, I, th- I think it must mean that she ends the show in the red dress. Because we see her in that dress again later, don't we? Right. I think it's meant to like be sort of a reference point in like the timeline of the show that they do at the Moulin Rouge that like mm. she ends the show in the red dress. I think that's what it must mean. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. So the show ends and then we are in the, the elephant. elephant. Christian has shown up. So she's in this stunning black number. It's, it's oh like gosh. Black, it's like lacy negligee. She's got one of those. My, my ex-husband just died robes. She thinks he's the Duke. She thinks that he's the Duke. He's like, yeah, I'm here. And he's trying to pitch the show to her. He's like, okay, I have to, t- I have to tell her some poetry. Okay, how am I going to do this? And so they're talking, and she's like, oh, would you like some champagne or some little nibblies or blah blah blah? And she's like trying to like get it all figured out of like. She's trying to put him in the mood because she's a courtesan. Like, she's hired to have sex with people to fulfill their fantasies. Right. And that's what she's working on. And she's like, oh, I'm I'm also a professional. This is what I do. So she's trying to find out what his vibe is. And then he's like, I would much rather just get it done and over with. And she's like... that's fine too. Okay. We'll do it your way. Okay. That's fine. Um, and so then she's laying on the bed. He's like, you can, you can sit down. She's like, oh, okay. He's like, because it's, it's going to be quite long and uh, I'll, I'll stand and you lay down. And she's like, oh, <laughs> she's thinking he's talking about his dick. And there's like, so there's so much there. And it's so funny. He says something about like, I know it's a little modern, but if you're willing to try and her eyes go just like as wide as saucers, because I, th- I think she thinks he's talking about anal something. He says, I know it's a little modern and her face is like, Oh, <laughs> but they figure it out and he starts reciting poetry. And again, she thinks that this is just like his way of getting the job done. Right. But we, we mustn't forget that before all of this, she figures out that he has a huge talent. Well, I think it happens after. Oh, does it? Because he starts reciting poetry to her and she's like writhing around screaming in ecstasy because again, she thinks that this is like... This is his his doing it. Yeah, and she ends up whipping out his dick at some point. Yeah, she like wrestles him onto the bed and ends up... Because she's like, okay, whatever. Like, if this is your foreplay, cool, whatever. But we need to do the D. Because... Right, because that's what you paid for. That's right, because that's how I'm going to convince you to, to fund the Moulin Rouge is like by banging it out of you. My power puss. So she like whips it out and she remarks that he has a huge talent. We've got Henri hanging from the... <laughs> In roof, right. also look like looking in. Right, He's the like, bohemians. Oh, the bohemians are huge 
huge talent. <laughs> the Bohemians are watching this happen too because they're trying to make sure that their proposition goes through. Ziedler is also watching this from like a, a watchtower, trying to make sure that his courtesan bangs the right person. Right. So he starts reciting your song, which uh. is an Elton John song, which is funny. So a dear friend of mine that had passed, that's like a song that had connected the two of us. I have a tattoo about it. It's a very meaningful thing for me. Right. It has a lot of sentimental value to you. So when he starts reciting these words and she's going, oh, 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 like all over the place, like while because she, she thinks this is his foreplay, I'm like, this is absolutely horrendous. It's so uncomfortable. It, it's, and then he starts to sing and, and she, it gets even worse. Yep. I, he didn't, he, don't do this, Ewan. Don't do it. You don't have to sing. McGregor. The only saving grace for him and Nicole Kidman is that they are both so pretty when they sing. They sound awful. I think his mouth looks really stupid when he sings, though. I think it's hot. I, I, good. He's got a hot guy thing going on when he sings, and like, thank God, or it would be unbearable. So I think I know what it is. I think Ewan McGregor is that jock in high school that showed up to musical auditions because he thought, why not? And he sung better than what they thought he would. It gives off really big, like, only straight guy in the theater department vibes. Yeah. And then they're like, look at how good he is. But he just isn't the best. He's mediocre at best. But he's good looking. My issue with him is like, it's such an easy fix because it's just like a couple of vowel placements that really push his tone flat. Yeah. And it's such an easy fix if someone had just like given him a voice lesson or taken a minute to just like change that vowel placement. It would have solved everything. Nicole Kidman is, I think, past saving. I don't think there's anything you could have done to improve her tone. I think that's just the way she sounds. But McGregor's issue is so easily fixed, and that's what really sticks in my craw about it. So we pop into a dream sequence. We get this stunning outfit, Ziedler's in the moon. Ooh, ooh, and uh, Christian's wearing that glitter tuxedo. Yep. With, like, the tailcoats. I love it so much. I want want it. I want to own it. Yeah. So in this moment, Satine is like, oh my God, I think I've actually fallen in love with you. A duke and a poet. And he's like, I'm not a duke. And she's like, what? And there's an actual audible record scratch. Yeah, casual. I thought it was kind of out of tone for the moment and the film. I thought it was funny. I I get why it's there. It just didn't sit right with me. (laughs) She's like, oh, okay. You're not the dude I'm supposed to be fucking. You need to leave. And she tries to shove him out the door. And as she opens the door, the the actual Duke is right fucking there. With his weaselly little mustache. Ugh. Um, and Ziedler is like, oh, yes, Satine, here, here's the Duke. So she's trying to hide Christian from the Duke. Yeah, because now she's got to seduce the Duke. And it's uh, absolutely banana pants it's all chaos. over the place. And she's like throwing herself around and throwing the Duke around. and Trying to distract his eyes so he doesn't look down and see Christian hiding behind her completely sheer outfit. Yeah, casual. <laughs> um, he ends up behind the bar cart at one point and she's like starts saying the words to... To your song. To your song that Christian just did. For her. And so she's like saying all of these things. And then his, the Duke's eyeballs light up at one point and Christian is trying to leave. And then all of a sudden there's a bodyguard and he comes back and he couldn't. And it's just. Right. Christian can't get out the door because the Duke's bodyguard is 
chilling there waiting for him. And this bodyguard is like full mafia family, like scar next to his eye, crazy looking villain. Scary as all hell. So then Christian's got to try and get all the way back through the room to the other side of the room so we can leave like out the window or something. And finally, Satine is like, oh, Duke, oh, I just... I'm she so throws taken, him on the bed. I'm so taken by you that we can't do this now. I've been overwhelmed. I need. I you've you've inspired. I I've you've inspired me. You need to leave, and so he leaves. She's like, okay. What the dude, fuck? You need to fucking get out of here. And then boom, she faints. Christian catches her and is like walking around with her, trying to figure out what to do with her limp body. Right. He's struggling to keep her upright too. Like he can barely support her weight. So he's like struggling to get towards the bed in sort of a lurchy kind of motion. And then they fall onto the bed. And as soon as he like lands on top of Satine, the Duke re-enters. And Ziedler, again, is still watching. And as Christian tries to put her down on the bed, Ziedler sees Christian lurching her body around in what essentially, from like a clipped view, looks like he's banging her upright. Right. And he can't see Christian's face in that moment. Right. So the Duke enters and he's like, the fuck is going on? Satine comes back to consciousness and is like, oh, this is the writer for the show that we're wanting to do. I called an emergency rehearsal. And he's like, oh, I'm fucking sure you did. And then all of a sudden the Bohemians come out of left field and they're like, Because, again, they were just right there watching the whole thing happen. Yeah, casual. They're like, oh, yes, no. And then he's like, oh, okay. And then Ziedler sees all these fucking people in the room and is like, I need to. What the fresh hell is going on? I need to intervene. So he comes busting in. Finally, Satine, Satine like looks at Ziedler and is like, Ziedler, you got my message about the emergency rehearsal. Don't worry. The Duke is completely up to speed. About this emergency rehearsal. That's what this is. So he starts to play along, and the Duke asks, what's the show about? And Ziedler says, the story is about, and I wrote down in all caps, do tell, Ziedler. I mean, usually he can get shit figured out. So, (laughs) Whose story are we talking about right now? We're so many layers in, do pray tell, what is the story about? Is the story about Christian? Do you mean Christian the writer who's writing the story about writing the story? Or do you mean Christian the actor who's in the play that he's writing the story about writing? Or do you mean the conductor who is conducting the story about the movie, about the musical, about the story that Christian is writing about the story that he's in? Someone tell me what's going on. Literally everything. (laughs) Christian steps in and starts being like, okay, so what the story is going to be about is going to be about a concubine and the Maharaja. Maharaja wants a concubine to be his. She falls in love with a poor sitar player. The sitar player is magical and speaks. The sitar only tells the truth. It's a whole thing. And they sing spectacular, spectacular. Which is... The pitch song. Absolutely ridiculous. It's so fun. And then the Duke is like, it's a little bit funny. Oh, I hate the I Duke's hate voice. So much. I know it's a character voice, but it's so sleazy. It gets so far under my skin. Oh. I literally have Duke never sing again. Thanks. Ever. I hate it. So he decides, okay, cool. We're going to do this musical after the spectacular spectacular. There's a moment where they're all dancing together and they like march in a circle around the bar cart. And John Leguizamo is meant to be like, like a little person essentially in this film. Does he do this whole number on his knees? I think some of it is on his knees. I did definitely tell that he was put in, in post 
in oh, certain in, things. Oh, in like a forced perspective kind of way? Yeah. Okay. Because uh, like, if you look at him in certain points, you can tell that there's like an outline around him. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. makes more sense because I was like, there's no way they got Leguizamo to do this entire fucking film just like on his knees. <laughs> There's a line at the end of Spectacular Spectacular 2 where the, the Duke chimes in and says, and in the end, should someone die? Hold that thought. Hold that thought. <laughs> so all of this has happened. The show is going to happen. Good, great, grand. We get Fly Away. Christian and Satine are both singing separately. She's in a red dress on top of the elephant. He ends up like going to her, which like because of the red dress, we assume that it's like a different day. Right. This is the other like reference point where I think the red dress like matters is because she's back in the red dress, but we didn't see her do the show, which I think is meant to indicate that she just finished the show. Right. So it's another day, another show. They do fly away. Christian ends up climbing up the elephant and he's like, hey, so like, what if we're in love? And she's like, I can't be in love because of the business that I'm in. Literally, no. And then they sing the elephant medley, which is just a ton of different love songs where you hear like four words from each song. Every song you've ever heard of that has the word love in it. The entire medley on top of the elephant is so ungodly flat. It's not cute. They both sound so terrible. And like the golden gazebo thing that they're in is stunningly gorgeous. The red dress is breathtaking. The silhouette is unique and interesting. Again, the shade of red is pervasive throughout the film. So the fact that she's in it now, I think, is really symbolic and wonderful. They both sound so bad. There's one line right at the end where they sing, and I will always love you. And it's so ungodly bad. I wrote down... Whitney, I'm so sorry, baby. And I'm also sorry to Dolly Parton who wrote the song. I'm sorry to both of you. Neither of Rude. you deserve that. Rude. You deserve better. It's bad. Yeah. It is bad vocals. And we get that kind of fantasy thing happening again with the two of them together because Ziedler's face is yet again in the moon. <laughs> Ziedler shows up in the moon and he sings a little line and it's probably the best sound we've heard vocally thus far in the film. Yeah, is this one pretty, little Ziedler moment. Has some pretty decent sound that happens. Oh, Absolutely. Speaking of Ziedler, so Ziedler and the Duke are having a conversation in Ziedler's office. He's like, okay, I will fund you to shift your whole mess of a building into a theater, but I have a couple requirements. I need to have a contract where Satine is mine and only mine, and I need to have the deeds to the Moulin Rouge. Right, I need collateral. Which, like, fine, collateral makes sense, but the thing with Satine is he says... I just don't like other people touching my things and gets really mad and absolutely disgusting. But Ziedler's like, well, sure. And he signs away. So Ziedler is addressing the folks who work at the Moulin Rouge and he's letting them know that we have been funded. We are going to turn this place into a theater. It's really going to happen for us. As he makes the announcement, a wrecking ball smashes into the wall behind him and knocks him over. And he pops up from this cloud of construction covered in concrete dust. And he says, the show must go on. Cut to Christian at his typewriter. And he says, the show would go on. Which show, Christian? What the fuck are we talking about? Every single one. The show you're writing? The experience you're recalling? The movie we're watching? Someone clarify for me what the fuck we're talking about. Literally all of it. Because this whole story is the same story told over again. And they're 
separate stories, but they're the same story. Mm-hmm. Fucking hell. So at this point, Satine is boinking Christian. Oh, they're at it. They're like in love. But remember, kids, Satine was promised to the Duke. So they have to keep this hush hush. So the Duke is getting pissed because he can't find any time with her. And he's not really clocking that Satine and Christian are doing it in the background. Because they do it under the guise of having to rehearse something or having to work on something. Or she's his muse, so she has to be there while he writes. Or like, whatever it is. They, they mask it under the creative process. The Duke was like, okay, so we're going to have dinner 8 o'clock in the tower. How great is that? And she's like, oh, I have to rehearse this thing so he's like oh fine okay i guess whatever christian and satine like head upstairs they run away to the balcony to mac on each other so they're up there macking ziedler is talking to the duke and is like hey so like your dinner with satine it's all prepared and he's like fucking cancel it because she has to rehearse again and then ziedler looks up and catches the lovers and he says he says to the group in the room he says we shall rehearse the lovers are discovered which is the, another name of a scene and he says that and he confers with the duke and then he looks up and discovers the lovers oh yeah jesus christ layers upon layers oh my god whose story are we talking about all of them we're constantly yep oh my god the layers in the dialogue are so deep cut what are we talking about at any given moment? So Ziedler is obviously pissed because he's like, if the Duke finds out, we lose the Moulin Rouge. Right. Don't mess this up for me, Satine. Just and because... also for you and everyone else here. Right. Like, we have a lot hanging on this. But the kicker is, so Christian ends up leaving. Ziedler talks to Satine and is like, girl, he has the deeds. Right. You are going to fuck a- this entire thing up. And she's like, he has what? So she's like, okay. All right, fine. I will meet with the Duke. I won't meet with Christian. That's just too much. Christian and I can figure something else out later. And he says, you need to end it. So Satine's going to meet with the Duke for dinner. Christian still thinks that she's going to meet up with him. Satine doesn't meet up with anybody because she coughs and faints and is like real bad. She's coughing up blood. And the stage mom is like trying to help her and fetches the doctor. Ziedler is with the Duke. The Duke is getting pissed because she's late. And he's like, don't leave. She's confessing to a priest. What? He's like, she's not fucking (laughs) confessing to a priest. No, she is because she wants to be, she wants to be new again. Pure for for you. you. So then we get like a virgin. This is such a fun reinvention of this number. And immediately puts us right back in like an MGM style 1950s musical fully because like we actually get to see the choreography we see jello boobs yeah we do which that was a little (laughs) uncomfortable for me it's the first time we get sort of like a pan out and we get to see an entire ensemble dancing at one time and like one number it's just the one number everything else has been like really tight close-ups of choreography and like really fast spliced short cuts of choreography and this is the first time we get to see like an actual number put together. But again, I think it's it's this moment, it's a snapshot of Baz Luhrmann's inspirations. I hate the Duke's voice. Hate it. I know again, it's a character I, voice. I know it's a character voice, but I, I hate, hate it. it. It serves the way it's supposed to because you're not supposed to feel comfortable with him no, at any it's point. It's intentional. You're, it's meant to make you uncomfortable. And another thing that makes me feel uncomfortable is he looks me in the face. Oh, the the fourth wall break at the end. 
this is a time where it's actually makes sense and is used in a really, it still makes me really uncomfortable, but it's meant to, right. It's, it's meant to feel violating because he's like, he's talking about the fact that you're fine and you're mine. And he's yeah. like looking oh. at you and it's oh. like, but it's very, that is very intentional to me. Um, unlike some of our other fourth wall breaks that we've seen. I hate it, but I am not mad that it's here because I know what purpose it serves. Exactly. A fourth wall break is a is a useful tool if you use it correctly, despite the fact that this one still makes me really, really uncomfortable. At least I know it's there for like... It's supposed to do that. Some kind of storytelling purpose. Right. Oh, but I hate it. He looks right into my soul. I, I feel unclean. <laughs> pause and take a shower after that Blah. one. We flash back over to Satine... Turns out homegirl is dying. Yeah, the doctor's like, it's consumption. It's, it's consumption. So consumption is now known as tuberculosis or TB. If, if someone's like, oh, I have to go get a TB test done. That's what they're talking about. So it's a disease that's caused by bacteria that usually attacks the lungs, which is why people would cough up blood. blood. A couple other names for that was the Great White Plague or the White Death. And that was due to the paleness of people when they got tuberculosis. They like oh. all the blood would like drain out of their face and they become super, super pale. That makes sense. Because oxygenated blood is what gives you color. Yeah. I wonder if that plays into like vampire lore at all. That would make a lot of sense. I'm sure it does. So Harold comes in mad as hell trying to find her and then finds out she's fucking dying. Yeah. and You it, jerk. And an important thing to note here is that Satine never learns that the, she does not She's learn. unconscious this whole scene. She doesn't. And they don't tell her when she wakes up that she's dying either. Because they're like, well... We need her to keep doing what she's doing. We need it. We need her for this show. So we're just going to tell her later. Christian ends up writing a song called Come What May. It's deliriously romantic. It's so beautiful. It's for the end of this production. Yeah, of the play that they're writing. It's a song about no matter what happens, we still love each other. Regardless of what our actions outwardly indicate. We do still love each other. We love each other. And that's what the song signifies. It's so pretty. It's, it is very beautiful. Um, and in the midst of rehearsing all of this, Nini is an absolute twat and walks up to the Duke and is like, why would she end up with a penniless writer? Oh, I mean, sitar player. Oops. And I didn't have her name at this point in the movie. Like I didn't know who she was. So I just wrote down, who is this oopsie ass bitch? Her full name is Nini Spreads Her Legs. <laughs> Things start clicking for the Duke. Like, oh my God, I'm the mo- the fact that he didn't catch us at any right, point. Right, right. He connects the dots He's and like, realizes Hold on that a minute. the character I'm of the, the Maharaja. Maharaja. The writer is the sitar player. And Satine is the concubine. Satine is playing herself. Hold on a moment. And so he has... He has objections and he's like why would she choose the sitar player he can't give her anything why wouldn't she choose the maharaja she should choose the maharaja and we need to rewrite this ending and christian just goes because she doesn't love you jesus christ holy fucking shit christian and then he just goes him him he she doesn't they're on stage rehearsing the whole cast is present and he just Totally blows everybody's cover. 
Everyone. Fucking hell. Everyone. And so then the Duke is like, okay, fine. You're going to rewrite the ending. And she's going to end up with a Maharaja. And the sitar player is not allowed to be anywhere. He loses. He loses. The Maharaja wins. That's how it has to end. Satina's like, ah, why don't you and I have dinner and we can discuss the ending? Because she's trying to... Because that truly doesn't make any sense for what the story is anyway. Right. It kind of undermines the actual story they're telling. But the Duke is the one producing it. Right. So she's like, okay, well, I'll I'll have dinner with you. We'll bang it out. You'll let us do the ending the way that we want it done. Because that's what's best for the storytelling. Excellent. So she's getting ready to go have dinner with the Duke. The cast is like sitting out, like hanging out and is like, the Argentinian is like, wow, so you fell in love with a sex worker. That happened to me once. Here's a song about it. This is why you shouldn't do it. Like you can't like, especially someone that you're also working with. Don't do that. Um, So we get uh, La Tango de Roxanne. This is where I got Nini's name. This is my favorite. So far, this is my favorite number. It's a good number. Because... It's one of the only numbers they didn't tamper with or change anything or add anything to when they they moved it from the movie to the musical. I don't much care for the Argentinian's voice. There's certain sections where I'm like, the really gruff roughness makes sense. I really like it. There's certain times where I'm like... I like okay. it. I, I think it's a unique timbre that does the job and is not like uncomfortable to listen to. No, not compared to other uh, things that we've had to listen to. Yeah, um, that's all orally subjective, of course. But like, right. So this number has just such strong. Emo- I mean, Tango does anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. So again, this is where I got Nini's full name, and I wrote, "Oh, her name is Nini. What a snake!" And then my very next note is, "Oh, but she dances really good." Right. And so during this whole number, much like everything else in this show, but this number does it really well, where they show the parallels between the number, the song and dance number, and what's happening with the Duke and Satine. The the dance is still moving us forward narratively. We just have to kind of like chop back and forth, which we've been doing constantly anyway. It's just so full of passion and it... uh, Oh, yes. I do really wish that we had panned out for just a sec so I could see everybody for longer, yeah. Everybody doing the tango together, at least for like even just like 20, 30 seconds of it, because everything is so like tightly cropped and zoomed in and close up of this tango that we get a lot of like oddly framed like tangles of limbs as they dance together. And it's very poetic and it's very pretty, but I just want like just one second to see the whole tango because there's multiple couples dancing and the ensemble is moving, but we can't see it. We can't see it. Yeah. And I just want like one shot. We get like one flash of it for a second, but it's just not long enough to actually no, get the choreo. No, it's not yeah. quite long enough. And I just wish that we had had a moment to see everybody doing everything. Christian is upset. This song ends. He's leaving. And Satine is like about to do it with the Duke or like right. get into She's in it. the process of submitting to him. She's accepted jewels. They're going to end the show, you know, however he wants. She's like, she's trying to appease him to get the show back to normal so that it ends with right. the sitar and because, player. And at the, right now, he's like, okay, I'll let you keep your ending because you're mine. Right. Because you've submitted to me. Right. And then she looks down and she sees Christian. She sees Christian on the street and like the Duke is right behind her and she whispers the word no. Quick content warning. 
if if SA is triggering for you, hop forward like 15, 30 seconds because we're not going to stay on this very long. No, we're not. But there is a moment here where after she says the word no, the Duke. So it starts now. The warning starts now. Here it is. Okay. So she says no, and he sees that she is looking down, notices Christian, and he's like, no, because you already submitted to me. And she's like, she's like crying and is upset and is like, no, I don't want this. But she doesn't know how, like, she's kind of trying to fight him off a little bit, but also she's like. But also this is her job and she's under contract and she knows that it's what's best for the show. Like it's. It's such an intense moment of conflict, but like she said no out loud. And that's all that's end of sentence period. That's all that needs to be said for that. So he starting the assault. It gets intense. He like whips her around. He's pulling at her clothes. He pushes her up against the table. Like breaks the necklace. His hair is falling crazy. His eyes go wild. It's absolutely terrifying. It is visceral. And then... La Chocola comes in and just fucking decks him. Just square in the jaw, just catches him. Okay, if if you were fast wording and trying to figure out, this is where the content warning drops. So, if you didn't hear that, La Chocola just decks the Duke and snags his friend and is like, fuck you, dude. And then they leave. Which, by the way, the moment that it was not Christian... I was so happy. I agree wholeheartedly. I love that Chocolat is a black character who is nothing more and nothing less than a hero. The whole time. Always catches Satine, always does the right thing, doesn't have any dialogue or expansive character. He's just a hero. Truly like the hero of this film. More of that, please. I mean, I don't real. need I don't need moral gray area with my black protagonist anymore. I'm done with that, I'm past it. I just need black heroes. Straight up. The Shakala carries Satine away and she goes to Christian. Like Shakala helps her get to Christian and she's sobbing and upset and talks to him about what happened. And he's like, we can be done. We don't have to do this. We don't have to do this, meaning we don't have to do the show. We can just run away together. And she's like, I just, but what about? And he's like, no, if we have each other, that's all we need. And then she's right. like, oh, you're right. They make this really deep, meaningful promise to each other that as long as they have each other, they'll be okay. But like, bitch, you are dying. Which she comes to find out here very soon. I know you don't know it in this moment, but she like promises him forever. And it's so bittersweet. It would be her forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so bittersweet because like we know and she doesn't. Oh, it sucks. Yeah. So she's like, okay, fine. I'm going to go pack my shit. Great. Ziedler ends up talking to the Duke and the Duke is like, at the end of this, Satine needs to be mine and Christian better not be anywhere or we're going to just murder him. I'll kill him. End of sentence. That's it. Those are my conditions. Satine belongs to me. And if anybody objects, I will literally murder them. Satine tries to leave, goes to pack her stuff and is talking to Ziedler and Ziedler is like, no, you can't leave. Don't do this. Da, 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 da. And... Then he tells her, like, hey, the Duke is going to murder Christian. Even if you run away, this man has so much influence and power that he will find him. Yeah. And he will end up dead. You have to do this show. 
And then she finally is, is just like, no, I, no, Christian nope, loves I'm not me. doing it. Christian really loves me. Me for me. And I'm not doing this anymore. And then Ziedler is like, Satine, you're, you're dying. You're dying. She's like, what? And he's like, you've come, you know, come down with consumption. You're dying. I don't know how much longer you have left. And she's like, you're lying to me. So I stay. And then like the, the house mom, the stage mom, she looks to her and is like, is this true? And she's like, yeah, it's true. You are dying. Sorry, babe. And like this whole sequence from like when she, when Chocolat scoops her up to now when she's told that she's dying is so much slower and intentional and controlled. And there's such dexterity and a sincerity in the delivery of both of these scenes back to back, because we've been cruising out of control so fast up to this point. Flashes of different scenes, left and right, people all over the place, storylines all over the place, color all over the place. We're constantly telling three or four different stories at once through one set of dialogue. Like we are absolutely screaming through plot and then we get here and it slows down almost it feels like to a halt to deliver this news yeah and to to kind of lay out these lines for for our lovers and it's so again just like so well controlled such a strength of this storytelling technique absolutely it's the the timing in this and it's it's all Baz Luhrmann's direction like really sparkling through to brilliant life he does so well in maintaining the pacing of this story and it really shines here in this moment it's breathtaking it's moving it's stunning and and what keeps with this kind of almost slow-mo for a while is the next number that we get, which is The Show Must Go On. Oh, and for the very first time in this musical, we are real near the end. And for the very first time, I feel like we have really stunning, excellent, pleasing vocals for an entire number. Yeah. Because Ziedler does a really, is it Broadbent? That's the name of the actor? Yes. Jim Broadbent. He does a really phenomenal job vocally. He's one of my favorite voices in the cast. He yep. sounds excellent. And he's got this chorus of women underneath him who are all like stitchers or, you know, other people who work in the theater. And they sound, they sound, they have this rich, full, kind of older sound than a lot of the ensemble stuff we've heard up to this point. And it's just, this whole number just vocally sparkles from, from beginning to end. You can tell that there's a dark undertone to it because of Satine dying and all of this stuff. But you see so many workers that have been able to be employed by this project that Ziedler's like, it does actually have to go on because not only for the success of this becoming a theater, but look at all of these people that need to be paid. Right. And again, this community of people is a community. Truly. They rely on each other. Their home, the Moulin Rouge hinges on the success of this musical. Also in this number, you get, that Ziedler is very saddened by what has to happen. Satine is getting dressed to go tell Christian that she doesn't actually love him um, to try and keep him away. Yeah. And she's dressing in something that we haven't really seen, something in that we haven't really seen her in before, this like fully covered from like neck to wrist to ankle, gray and black. Yeah, it's very monochromatic. Mm-hmm 
like almost like a morning outfit. All the life of the colors that she's worn up to this point are completely gone. Like it's a very beautiful symbolic use of color. And again, the duo who does the costumes on this have such a spectacular use of color throughout this entire film. Truly. And I just found out Martin, who was half of this duo, Martin and Strathy, Martin is uh, Catherine Martin, Baz Luhrmann's spouse. Wild! I know, I had no idea. Keep it in the family, I suppose. I hope that's what we do. Um, (laughs) She ends up leaving, and we get this beautiful moment of her walking down through center stage, down the aisle, heading out, and Ziedler standing there, and we get this just brief passing of the two of them. It is very cinematic. Because they're the only ones who know what's truly all going on. Satine goes to Christian, just as like, no, I'm going with the Duke. I don't actually love you. He can give me so much more. Goodbye. Yeah, I, I know I just promised myself to you, but I just spoke to the Duke and he said he would give me everything I've ever wanted. And you can't. So you have to leave. You have to leave. Don't show up ever again. Goodbye. And it works. It does work. And he's he's very upset. So he's like laying in bed. Toulouse is like, she has to love you. The way that she would look at you, the way that she would talk about you. She loves you. And Christian gets upset and is like, don't, don't fucking talk to me about this. Stop. Because you're trying to make me hope for something that's not, not there and not going to happen. But during all of this, then he's like, fuck it. I'm going to show up at the Moulin Rouge. And he like, it looks like he sells his typewriter to get cash and like goes to the Moulin Rouge and Toulouse overhears that, oh, Christian's here. So he's going to get murdered. And so he's like, we get this really intense scene of Christian chasing Satine around with this cash and is like yelling at her and is like, well, then I must not be anything more to you than a customer. So I need to pay you. And this, that, and the other thing is she's like, please just go, like, trying to get him right, to like, go you, away. You have to leave before someone finds out you're here. They'll kill you. And he's like, you're just da 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 whatever. Henri is, like, in the ceiling because he's, like, uh, yeah, He's up in the rafters trying but to... he's, like, seeing everything that's going on and is trying to tell Christian, like, there is a dude with a gun trying to murder you right now actively because they they know he's here now so like right the duke's bodyguard is chasing them around like trying to corner them and they end up like behind one of the main entrances on stage having this altercation so there's the guard with the gun satine's on the ground sobbing and christian is above her like like slapping her with cash trying to right and because of course the unconscious argentinian is unconscious again so christian like stole his outfit they show up on stage. What an absolute mess. And it's terrifying because it's like, okay, so you're doing this show in front of an audience that's confused as to who this new person is on stage. And you don't know what's going to go on. Like, can you imagine being another actor and just like being on stage during this show? And all of a sudden you're like, <gasps> who's this? Oh my God. Oh my God. It's the writer. Why is he on stage? What is happening? Luckily, the person who's, like, narratively in charge of what's going on is Ziedler. 
Who's playing the Maharaja. So he picks it up and makes up some line, inserts it about like, oh, you look different, but you can't fool me. I know you're still the sitar player, even though you look different now. Because you shaved your beard. And the audience Uh is like, ah, yes, of course. Okay, Ah, it all makes sense. And Ziedler is, again, just like agog and aghast because he is one of the only people in the room who fully understands what's fucking happening. Right. Also, real quick, the musical that we see, I know it's probably meant to be a Bollywood reference, and now that you've mentioned that Bollywood was one of Lerman's inspiration points, like, it makes more sense why we made this choice, but, like, the musical we've presented is very culturally appropriative and racist and not appropriate. Yeah, well, because also if you look at things like Satine's dressing room, that is an elephant. It looks very much so like Indian inspired. Yeah. Kind of. And there was this whole thing that happened, I believe it was in like the late 90s, early 2000s, where like white people do just be appropriating Indian culture. Yeah, I, yeah, I understand it as like a cultural moment. It's not a, it's not okay in any, and that's right. why we're calling it out was like, there was this whole time period where people were just like putting on like sarongs and like different things that, and like the bindi that people were wearing as jewelry, which is the, oh, the mark. Like red dot. The red mark, like yeah. on the forehead. forehead. There you go. There's the word. Well, I was like forehead or is it because of third eye or is it like, so, I'm not Either actually. Way, I'm not actually sure of the cultural the significance, is. but yeah. but yeah, it was like a it was like a fad it, for a minute using it as jewelry. Um, and so that's kind of to the best of yeah. my knowledge, they didn't do the same thing in the live show. I hope not in the Broadway musical. I at the very least, I can't find any production photos that indicate that they do. So I hope that that's something that we've learned, and that as of 2018, 2019, when this moved to Broadway, we knew better, so we did better. I hope. If anybody knows anything of the contrary, tweet at us and let us know. But I will say somewhere in this musical, they they have a, a line from Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend and someone fa- finally finishes the song. That's nice. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> so she's like, don't worry, Maharaja. I just came to pay my whore and like throws the money at her. And like in my heart, I just, it breaks so hard because I'm like, you don't know this, but she's dying and she's doing this to save you because you're literally about to get murdered right here and now on this stage. And you just don't know any of this and you treat her like such common trash. Even though she's doing like the most romantic thing for you. Yeah. So then he starts leaving and she starts to sing the Come What May reprise. Yes, yes. Sing the secret song. She's singing the secret song. The everyone around is like, oh, fuck yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Except for the Maharaja, of course. Well, obviously. The, so, the Duke, the Maharaja. Not, yeah. Not yeah. Ziedler, the Maharaja. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, the Duke. <laughs> the Duke. Um, starts getting super pissed. And he starts coming back. Christian starts coming back. And it's like, oh, my God. She is in love with me. She must have her reasons. And the Duke's henchman this entire time is trying to murk him. And one of the people in the ensemble notices him and that he has a gun and goes upstage and like drops a whole sandbag on him. Like people are fighting with him left and right, acting like it's choreography to because they're like, he has a gun. I don't know what he's going to do with that, but he should not have a gun here. And then he finally gets a clear shot at Christian. Someone drops a sandbag on him. The gun goes spiraling off into the distance. Because the Duke is leaving because he's pissed. 
And then he sees that the gun is out and he starts like running at Christian going to shoot him. And then Ziedler, AKA the Maharaja just fully decks him in the face. The Duke gets punched a lot in this movie. And he deserves to. He absolutely deserves it. And 10 stars for Ziedler. I was team Ziedler this whole time. I know he's like scummy or whatever, but I think he does it out of like necessity to keep himself safe and like to create community for the people that can't take care of themselves. Like he does it for a good reason. Like he's not a scummy guy because he's a bad guy. He's a scummy guy because society like discarded him. And this is just what he has had to do to team Ziedler. Yeah. Um, Because in the beginning I thought that he was like a pimp. Yeah. A sex trafficker. Yeah. Like, and I was like, but then I noticed the relationship that him and Satine had. And right, the it's about survival. to have with the girls, and it's, yeah. Um, so all the bad guys lost, the curtain ends, the musical's over, everybody lived, hooray. That's not really what happened. I know, and then Satine... Satine can't <laughs> breathe, and she, like, fully faints. One thing that I will say is every single time she gets to the point of not being able to breathe, they did a really great job of physically making it look like something's happening. So there's always sweat on her brow when it happens. And she always seems to go paler. Down to like her lip liner starts to bleed whenever it happens. Like yeah. it's very consistent. And she says that she tells Christian cause he's like, Oh my God, what's going on? She's like, Christian, I'm dying. All the details come out. I'm fully sobbing. And she looks up at him as these people are watching and just so much horror and sadness And she's like, tell our story, Christian. And the whole narrative, every layer of this show hinges on this moment. Because it's a love story between the two of them, no matter what layer you look at. And in this moment, she says, promise me you'll tell our story. Every single part of this, this is the core, this is the very center. Can I tell you something that I just thought of right now in this moment? Yeah, tell me. So in the very beginning... When Henri is like, if we have Satine, then we'll have a backer and we can have a story. Literally, it truly is just about Satine because if Satine didn't say that, yeah, then this whole story wouldn't have been told. It like, so like all the way in the beginning, it was like, if we don't have Satine, we don't have a story. You're right. You're right. But all then the they, way through. <laughs> then they lose Satine and they have the end of the story. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's really self-encapsulated, and, like, this line really coalesces the entire thing into one shape in the wildest way possible. And, like, there, the curtain is closed. The entire cast is backstage. Like, as Satine is dying, it's very mournful. The other side of the curtain is a standing ovation, uproarious applause. Like, the audience loved it. They're losing their minds over it. The 1899 portion of this film ends, and we get... Christian back in his little room and he has typed up the whole story. And I have noticed that at this point, his room is a lot lighter Mm -hmm. in color, like meaning like it actually has some color brought back to it. Yeah. Again, the use of color is almost always symbolic in this film of just holy jazz. And he has the whole story all typed up all together. And then we get this really quick, like pan back out that we got in the beginning of the story when we panned in so quickly. Back out like through the streets of yes, Paris. of Paris. And we get the reprise of Nature Boy to kind of like end cap it. 
Yeah, because again, we got we get so far into this story and we're telling layer upon layer of the same story in different ways at the same time. And then we get to the very core where everything hinges. And then there's this emotional impact, this emotional resonance. The story coalesces. And then we take a minute to zoom all the way back out, like all the way back out to our frame story with the proscenium and the conductor. And then the curtains close and we really do get this whole book-ended story about a story about storytellers telling stories about storytelling. Like the whole thing kind of coalesces is the only word I can think of where it just kind of like concretely frames itself. And then we get the end of the story. This story is dedicated to Baz Luhrmann's father, Leonard. And mm-hmm. I feel that it's worth mentioning just because I think that art that is dedicated or means something emotionally always has more impact. And to know that this story was also in dedication and in memoriam, I think is really important to the way it was told. So what an insane swirling cacophony of storytelling. Someone just end me. I can't even handle how layered this thing is. It's like a, I was going to say it's like an onion, but I hate that comparison. It's like a, a, a what's that Greek dessert? A baklava? It's like a, it's like a parfait. Everybody loves parfaits. I think it's like a layered pastry. Did you catch my reference? Yes, I did. Thank okay, you. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> a baklava. A baklava. Baklava. Do you say it like a chicken? Baklava. I'm, what do you rate it? What do you rate it? What do I rate it? Okay, so we have to take at least a half point off for the inappropriateness. Yeah, I also, I don't know, the the assault bothers me, but it also means something really important narratively. Oh, I meant the whole, like, Indian thing. No, that too, that too. That that, oh, that, that okay. gets half a point, but I also feel okay. like we have to address the, the assault and, like, whether or not it affects the score at the end. And I will say that this assault, while it does intentionally make you uncomfortable it doesn't involve anything explicit or or like sexually graphic Mm -hmm. it's all kind of implied violation so i i feel i mean out of all the really graphic assault kind of things that we've seen like unlike for example like the phantom of the opera hanging that happens that is like way too explicit and graphic for the point it's trying to make i feel like this one makes the point it intended to make without Without crossing damaging. any, yeah, without crossing uh, any, yeah. like, explicit boundaries. Yeah. So I, that doesn't, but so much of the singing was so bad. It's so bad. So much of the singing was so bad. There's, like, one good voice out of all the principal characters, and it's Ziedler, and, like, that's it. Everybody and I, else sucks. It just, yeah. There's so much to that story that the singing is just not even not even a part of it. Yeah. I know that we didn't discuss much of it. Here's the thing. The singing is all pretty piss poor. However, it forces you to look at the content instead of the quality. Like you're it it really makes you focus in on the lyrics and the story they're telling and not like the voices that are telling it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so for that reason, like, I think the the lack of trained voices is almost an asset to the film. But when you look at the live production, when you look at the Broadway cast recording and the, and the voices that they use there, the story isn't told less well because the voices were better. Which is why I'm like, mm-hmm. 
I understand maybe why they did it in a film context to not have voices that you were obsessed with maybe because they, they don't want you to focus just, on them. Maybe they also just like super jived with these people. There I mean, are that's some people possible. that really, really love this and really are like, this. these are some of the best sounds I've ever heard come out of a human. Oof, that's a shitty opinion. And Nicole Kidman is a huge musical theater fan. She's done a lot of movie musicals. Mm-hmm. And I think probably because she like slips some of her own money into the mix. That's speculation, mind you. Please don't come for me. But like, I know that she's very supportive fiscally when it comes to these projects because she wants them to be told and she wants them to succeed. And brava, mama. Right. And that's great. There's a place for everybody in the world of live theater. Financial support is one of them. But I don't think her voice lends anything to this project. I don't think Ewan McGregor's does. I know there are some other timbres in here that are not always to everybody's taste. So I don't know. That takes it down a whole a whole bunch for me. I want to give it like a two and a half. I, I can vibe with a two and a half. I, would, I can vibe with a two and a half. I would give it a two because a lot of it is really, truly abysmal. Maybe it's a three. The whole cast doesn't suck. I don't know. What do you feel? Two and a half or three? I th- the visuals are spectacular. The visuals are spectacular. The layered storytelling and the way that they tell the story is so good. It's really, really thoughtful. And not something that I've, I think I've seen done anywhere else. Just, I've seen a lot of meta theater, and this is the, the most intricately designed and layered one. I think it might be a three. <laughs> Can we do a 2.75? Like, I just, I just. No, I, I, I have the same predicament because, like, I don't want to give it a three. No, because like really, it feels really generous. I, it does. Because it, to me, the reason that it's getting, like, a whole, like, two points, all of those points is for the direction and artistry of it. Yeah. Cause again, the, uh, the directing here is spectacular. Spectacular, spectacular. I say 2.75. Okay. We're really, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're splitting them down here, but we are, but I just, <sighs> let's just make it a 2.5. Fine. 2.5. 2.5 with conflict. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, should we give it the biddy test? The BD, the biddy Drake. Pass, fail. 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 I'm sorry. Fail. I don't want to see almost any of these people live literally ever. I'm sorry, Broadbent. You do such a magnificent job, but it's bad. And my question to you too is, is do you think that his vocals would stand out as much as they do if we had stronger vocalists? everywhere else i don't think so i think i don't think so i think if the rest of the cast were up to par i would be like wow ziedler's voice is so like well suited to his character right you wouldn't be like oh i wouldn't be gushing about it the way i am but he i mean he stands out so starkly against all of these yeah consistently flat voices and the thing that bothers me the most is that the problems were fixable yeah you know what i mean like they already did seven months of shooting and were like I know over but like, over going, but like but that's it's a, the thing. but it's something on the preparation end. Like when you cast Ewan yeah. McGregor, did he have vocal training? Someone should have sat him down and been like, "Hey, this is how you don't sound like garbage forever." Yeah, that's something we could have done ahead of production to fix this problem. And I felt there was like a lot of tension in his voice, and there's a lot of yeah. Yeah. Pushing. I just... It makes me mm. sad, but it's a fail. I don't know that I'll ever pass a cast recording with Nicole Kidman in it. 
The one exception is maybe nine, the musical. Ugh. It's a good one. It is a good one. Although she is in it and she sounds just awful. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever pass a, a pass a musical with Nicole Kidman in it. I just think there she has an irredeemable voice in my opinion. So it's a fail. 2.5 and a fail. Rough. Despite the fact that I have a lot of good things to say about this one. <sighs> a cookie? Yeah. A cookie. I... I so, today's fortune cookie is as follows. That was Tony Award winner Aaron Tveit singing one of the opt-ups that they wrote for the musical in Roxanne. He takes it probably like 40% of the time in the show. It's so good. I love it so much. It doesn't mean anything other than it's really impressive to me and I really love his voice. We love an opt-up. I love an opt-up. If you have the choice to opt-up and you don't, I'm disappointed in you. Mm-hmm. Of course, only when it benefits the story. Vocal stunting is, like, the style right now. Everyone wants to, like, riff and and opt up and belt and do crazy vocal gymnastics. You should only do it when it benefits the story. But if it does and you choose not to do it, why? Mm. What are you trying to prove? That you're, like, a purist? Mm. Sondheim is dead, you guys. We don't have to. Who are you trying to impress? You know who else is dead? Huh? The queen. Oh, my God. I know. We just found out. It just... (laughs) It just happened like an hour ago. Devastating. 96. That's wild. I literally watched a video earlier today and was like, they're like, we think the queen might be dying. And I was like, yeah, she'll probably be dead in the next day or two. You gotta stop doing that. I gotta that. stop doing that because I did that. And <laughs> my grandfather did. You have to, you have to pull it together. I just, oh. The power you wield. <laughs> You keep Angela Lansbury's name out your damn mouth. Oh, I will. You better. (laughs) Oh, I will. I will. Oh, what a wild time. I'm so glad we finally got around to doing this one. It took forever. It took forever. And then we, this, guys, this is the one where we like started the recording and got almost all the way through and then the computer died. Oh my God. Devastating. The amount of times that we have checked to make sure that everything is plugged in. Oh my God. It was like, it was like surgery setting up today. Oh, but we did it. Okay. Where can they find us? You guys can find us on Twitter at Backstage BDs. That's Backstage B for Benny, D for Drake, S. Instagram and TikTok at Backstage Biddies or email us at BackstageBiddies at gmail.com. If you rate us five stars and comment or send us any sort of communication what your favorite movie musical is or one that you absolutely hate and you want us to review... Um, feel free to do that because then you'll be moved to the top of the list just like this one. I would like to add an addendum to that. An addendum? Um, please rate us five stars and share us with a friend in order to be added to the list. Yeah, share. Yes. Yup. Those are the rules now. Those are the rules. Where can they find you? 
Find me. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Binny Biddy, and you can find me on Twitter at Binny Ann, no E. Where can they find you? You can find me on TikTok and Twitter at Drake underscore Leverance. That's Drake underscore L E W E R E N Z as in zebra. Drake underscore Leverance. Okay, we're done. Okay. Bye. We're back in action, finally, thank goodness. Finally doing Moulin Rouge.